Welcome to this episode of Revolution and Ideology. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. And in this episode, we are sort of laying the groundwork for uh, a few episodes that we might do in the future. Um, In this episode, we're talking about Eric Hobsbawm's The Invention of Tradition. Um, We want to sort of lay the theoretical groundwork that will inform some of the uh, details and examples that we're going to give in future episodes. Um, The Invention of Tradition is an edited volume by Eric Hobsbawm and Terence Ranger, first published in 1983. If you somehow have never heard of Eric Hobsbawm, which I guess is forgivable if you're not into history, uh, but if you're a historian and never heard of Eric Hobsbawm, then I don't know how you became a historian. But he's one of the most influential historians of the 20th century, really. Um, And this work, The Invention of Tradition, is really his most well-known work that's sort of about history, I guess, is kind of how I frame it, where he's talking sort of about the historical method and the things we need to pay attention to when we're doing history, uh, but in a very specific, uh, narrow way, which we'll obviously get into. Um, This is an edited volume that Hobsbawm put together and he writes the introduction, and then he writes one of the specific chapters. So it's basically his intro introducing this sort of theoretical framework, this concept, and then other historians writing specific historical examples um, supporting this idea. Uh, we're going to talk about what the idea is and why it's important uh, for us to think about, specifically when we're doing history, but really just in uh, day-to-day existence. Do you have anything to add? No. Let's get going. All right. So the overarching idea, and I'm just going to read a few quotes as we're going through to kind of get uh, Hobsbawm's point across. He says, quote, nothing appears more ancient and linked to an immemorial past than the pageantry which surrounds British monarchy in its public ceremonial manifestations. Yet as a chapter in this book establishes in its modern form, it is the product of the late 19th and 20th centuries. Traditions which appear or claim to be old are often quite recent in origin and sometimes invented. So I have the last sentence bolded because that's the main thesis here. Traditions which appear to be old are often quite recent in origin and sometimes invented. His overall idea is that many things that we think have been around since time immemorial are invented very relatively recently. And I like the term invented. It's You think of it as like manufactured for very specific ideological purposes. We'll talk about the functions in a second, but it's to make people you know, think, believe, and behave in very specific ways. Anything on that one? No, I don't know if in the intro you mentioned that his uh, exemplary focus is like the British crown, but that's yeah. what, so if you hear us consistently referencing like the British crown, it's not because that's a super important interest of ours. That just happens to be what Hobsbawm uses as like almost his like, I don't want to say straw man, that's not the right fallacy we're talking about because there's not really a, right. a fallacy here, but that's the example he's choosing to use, right? To like evidence mm-hmm. his claims of an invented tradition. So yep. neither myself or Nick are specifically British historians by any stretch of the imagination. That's the example that he's choosing to use. I mean, so yeah, let's keep moving. Okay, so what is an invented tradition? Quote, invented tradition is taken to mean a set of practices normally governed by overtly or tacitly accepted rules and of a ritual or symbolic nature, which seek to inculcate certain values and norms of behavior by repetition, which automatically implies continuity with the past. In fact, where possible, they normally attempt to establish continuity with a suitable historic past. Now you've heard us talk about, uh, we have a short video on ethically constituted stories. Uh, These stories that uh, sort of inform 
what people, you know, think, say, do, etc., and form a historical narrative. They inform the ways that we think of a past. This is really, really connected to that. This comes before Roger Zim Smith does his work on ethically constitutive stories, but an invented tradition in Habsbaum's usage uh, serves to connect the present with uh, the historical narrative, the past. And I think his point, I don't think, his point Imagine is- Imagine the past. Yeah, exactly. His point is that this past is not reality. It's a manufactured narrative that the tradition functions to make us feel a part of, make us feel is real, make us feel connected to. His term is a suitable historic past. That's Hobson would never say, you know, manufactured or something that's suitable means that, you know, it's not reality. It's how we want you to believe about the past. Uh, so that's an interesting uh, point that we have to keep in mind. Traditions are invented partially to serve that function. We'll get to some functions of them uh, later well, on, but that's one rom- of them that's key. To romanticize it to the extent mm-hmm. that it informs, and, and that's what I often say, uh, that we've said it on numerous episodes here, I say it often in the classrooms why I choose to teach history. It's the most important narrative that we tell that informs not even the past, it informs the present. We teach history to inform or rationalize what our present looks like, why we think, speak, and act the way we do for better or worse, right? Depending Mm -hmm. on what topic we're talking about. So we'll often, again, invent these types of things, this imagined past, oftentimes, uh, if we're talking about it within the framework of the nation state, which you're going to get to, to glorify the construction thereof, this form of social organization. And for all the faults that whatever society we live in might have, this manufactured past answers a lot of those questions. And sometimes we'll romanticize the notion that maybe we've solved some of those problems. Uh, if we're talking specifically about the United States, obviously it's a highly mythologized history that we teach that is a chock full of invented traditions that we'll get to that in a future episode. So anyway. Yep. I mean, we have a series called Myth is America, right? We, yes. every single one of those episodes one of is a lot of these yeah. lines. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So. Yep. Um, okay. Difference between customs and traditions. This is important to understand. He says, Quote, customs, custom is what judges do. Tradition, in this instance, invented tradition, is the wig, the robe, and other formal paraphernalia and ritualized practices surrounding their substantial action. Then later on, he says, a second less important distinction that must be made is between tradition in our sense and convention or routine, which has no significant ritual or symbolic function as such, though it may acquire it incidentally. End quote. So he says, first, we must differentiate between a custom and tradition. So he says custom is like the position and the role, right? So he uses the example of a judge. Customs are the sort of the function of judges in our society and what they specifically do. Tradition is, as an example, the symbols of the wig, the robe, and other formal paraphernalia. Keep in mind, he's British, so judges wore wigs traditionally. Uh, They don't in the U.S. anymore, as an example. But you get the idea. Everyone can picture what he's visually describing here. Right. So the invented tradition is everything symbolic that goes along with their role and uh, how they perform it. Right. So that's fine. Um, And he uses uh, secondly, says we must distinct uh, create a distinction between tradition and routine or just mere convention. And the example that he uses, which I like, is the work of an aircraft pilot. And we can all sort of imagine, even if we're not pilots, right, what this job entails, the checklists and the very rigid uh what do I want to say, routine of how the pilot does his job on every flight before and after and during, right? That that is merely just a routine, a convention that's sort of part of the job. Um, It's just a collection of repetitive tasks, but that's not 
doesn't serve any symbolic meaning above and beyond that. And he has a quote that really, I think, illuminates that. He says, quote, such networks of convention and routine are not invented traditions since their functions and therefore their justifications are technical rather than ideological. So invented traditions perform ideological functions. So like the pilot doing his job, right, very clearly doesn't make us believe or think in any specific way. It doesn't make us behave in any specific way, right? It's merely just a job. It's a technical task rather than an ideological, you know, symbol of things. So that's key, custom uh, compared to tradition. Then his sec- his uh, next point is, more traditions are invented in times of rapid social change. He says, quote, there's probably no time and place with which historians are concerned, which has not seen the invention of tradition. However, we should expect it to occur more frequently when a rapid transformation of society weakens or destroys the social patterns for which old traditions had been designed, producing new ones to which they were not applicable. Then he goes on and talks about how, uh, as a result of this part of this idea, that the period following the industrial, I mean, during and following the industrial revolution, there are more traditional traditions were invented more than any other time before that, because society was changing so relatively rapidly. And in fact, the chapter that Hobsbawm contributes to this edited volume is him writing specifically about that time period. One of his expertise, his uh, periods that he covers the most is the American Industrial, or not American, the Industrial Revolution um, and the time shortly thereafter. So he writes a chapter all about the invention of traditions during that period. Now, the question becomes, why do traditions get invented during times of social change? Do you have any ideas? Uh, to reify the changes in the institutions and socialize not just the populace that is dealing with those changes, but their progeny into these new practices and beliefs. Exactly. So as traditions are being thrown by the wayside during periods of rapid change, we need to, I say we isn't like the proverbial we, right? Need to invent traditions to socialize people into this new burgeoning society. If society is changing that fast and that dramatically, then People are going to feel detached from, I mean, in reality, detached from their past, detached from the history, detached from doing things the way that they had been done, right? Tradition. So we must invent new traditions that uh, replace those traditions that are no longer applicable to create sort of a continuity, a continuous narrative that people can feel like they belong to. So that's one of the, yeah, one of the yeah. most um, proven ways in history to, again, indoctrinate uh, a, a population is to ritualize their behavior. And these traditions mm-hmm. begin to ritualize their behavior, right? Exactly. And I mean, really, to through that ritualization to legitimize the status quo, right? right. So then he says there's three types of traditions that uh, have existed since the Industrial Revolution. And this will get to a little bit of the functions of these traditions. The first one, he says, establishes membership in groups. He says, quote, those traditions establishing or symbolizing social cohesion or the membership of groups, real or artificial communities. This actually relates to another idea that came out almost exactly the same time um, by uh, what's the name I'm blanking right now? The imagined communities. Oh, Benedict Anderson. Benedict Anderson uh, has a really influential work around this time, too, called Imagined Communities that really links to this first one uh, that Hobsbawm lists, these invented traditions 
that create and solidify our membership in social groups. And oftentimes the membership, I mean, those groups are purely just artificial. They're invented also. So we've invented groups and then we create symbolic traditions that solidify our membership in these groups. And a lot of this for Hobsbawm also has to do with status, different classes, right? Hobsbawm's a Marxist historian, uh, for sure. He's one of like the archetypical Marxist historians. So for him, uh, a lot of these examples we can think of have to do with our identification with our working roles in society, how we establish ourselves in different uh, hierarchies and statuses related to class and race and so forth and others. Do you so want to clarify first that, that Marxist assertion for listeners that might not be familiar, that you're not calling Hobsbawm like a communist historian? What, what, is the, what do He's you mean by Marxist, like a Marxist conception of history? I should clarify. Yeah, you're right. He's not like a communist, even though he identified as a socialist, but that's a whole other conversation. He believes in the Marxist conception of history, right? where history progresses through a series of events. Um, yeah, we don't have time to go through the Marxist uh, history of events. We can link to a video that does, but just know that's what I meant. He's not like right, a in contrast Stalinist to maybe or something, like an Anale school historian or a post-structuralist yeah. or something. Marxist in this case is not about his political viewpoint. It's merely how he views historical processes, obviously yeah, materially driven. Yep. The second type of tradition is one that legitimizes institutions and authority. He says, quote, those traditions establishing or legitimizing institutions, status or relations of authority. So this is where the hierarchy plays a role. He says we invent traditions to legitimize essentially the hierarchy, the dominant institutions in any society and the status of authority in any society. So very clearly we can link back to Jared was talking about, right, the uh, monarch system in uh british history and how we we how like i did this um how people right created traditions to legitimize this institution and hobsbawm argues as you heard in the beginning this is a relatively uh recent uh idea the fact that we should create traditions and ritual and behaviors that legitimize this institution that's just one example right we can think of all kinds of different modern ones from the modern police, like law enforcement institutions, uh, all kinds of criminal justice, like the judges and the courtroom and the lawyers and so forth. I mean, in American history, we can talk about the office of the president, right? That literally was invented. And then we have all kinds of rituals and traditions that comes thereafter exactly. almost immediately right mm -hmm. that was started if we want to pick on that by like martha washington this pageantry um this elitism i mean at that time they were still getting used to this idea of representative style of government so some of those people actually wanted georgie porgy to be more of a king or a lifelong yep. ruler like alexander hamilton so they created this pageantry around him and perhaps elevated that office above the other two right like checks and balances positions mm -hmm. over the judicial and the legislative branch and we still think of it that way to this day. That was an invented tradition. It was supposed to be uh, more or less a horizontal checks and balances between these three parts of government. But I don't think if you ask anybody today, if they can rattle off all of their favorite senators and house reps or their favorite Supreme Court justices, it's it's the president that, 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 that really gets people's or the presidential process, the electoral process that really uh, people get wrapped up in. Well, why is that? In theory, that person, that individual doesn't necessarily have any more power than the other two branches, or at least that's not, not supposed to. But the pageantry, the tradition that began almost immediately after the, the, the um, election of the first president, that's where it comes from. I mean, and again, it was 
It was parties. Yeah. It was all that other stuff. Later on, we get Dolly Madison with her her famous invitations for political intrigue. Like, mm -hmm. And so that process has just developed further over the years. Sorry, we're getting off track with actual specific American examples, but regardless. That's right, because I was going to give one more of like the one I think of all the time is the swearing in ceremony, right? Yeah. Tens of thousands of people attend it, depending on who the president is, I guess. And right. it's on every news channel, right? And you literally watch the ceremony of the president being sworn in and it's taking officially the office and so right. forth, right? Clearly an invented tradition that didn't yeah. exist before there was a president, obviously. And so we just invented this tradition that legitimizes, par partially legitimizes this position. Right, and in a status. way, almost like deifies the position, which has become yep. part of the tradition at this point. I, mm -hmm. I, at least I would argue it as originally planned. This was just a dude. But mm -hmm. we've but because of the invented traditions, we've elevated that from just a dude. Right. So. Yep. Um, and the last type of tradition is ones that socialize us into beliefs. He says, quote, those whose main purpose was socialization, the inculcation of beliefs, value systems and conventions of behavior. These are the traditions that serve normative functions, right? They inform you, uh, your morality, what you should believe, what you sh how you should behave, difference between right and wrong, right? Our ethics and so forth. Um, these are all the traditions that do that sort of thing. Can you think of an example of that? Um, again, picking on U.S. history, I would argue the tradition of Thanksgiving does that. Um, mm -hmm. It was a clearly invented tradition. Um, actually, I would argue more of a stolen tradition from First Nations. But regardless, that tradition has socialized us into like, I mean, I'm not saying all of it is evil or bad per se. It is good to be grateful for things and to spend time with those close to you. But it also is a tradition that has slowly over time absolved us of the sins of like the colonizer and the land dispossession and eventually the ethnic cleansing campaigns and those types of things. And the problem with that, the normalization of that through the Thanksgiving mythology is that we see it normalized in later U.S. epics where these circumstances continue where, um, yeah, the U.S. is clearly the colonial aggressor at different points in history. And because we have this now tradition where we can absolve ourselves of those sins if we're grateful and we give thanks. And there's obviously a religious overtone there as well, um, usually a Protestant Christian one, right? Like mm -hmm. if those things are included, then it's all for some sort of eventual greater end, right? So I think Thanksgiving. It's interesting one. that you brought up the religious. I meant to talk about it and forgot earlier. The yeah. religious aspect. House Fund specifically says in this section, which by the way I want to mention, you can just read it if you're interested. The intro to the edited volume that we're going through right now is only 15 pages, so you can just knock it out if you're interested in these ideas at all. We'll link it in the show notes. Um, he says that despite the fact that modern times, post-industrial revolution, have more quantitative traditions than the past, mm -hmm. that they still have not succeeded in fully replacing the hegemony that the religious order held in past historical times, that it was so much more all-encompassing that we still haven't gotten to that point, even though we have numerably more traditions and more rituals surrounding our behaviors and statuses, et cetera, that we still haven't got to a point where we've fully replaced the absence of the religious order in society, which is, which is interesting. interesting. That, that yep. is an interesting assertion. I actually kind of like that. I'm thinking immediately of something we just kind of like briefly debated before we got on. Like, but that's why, like, we still have maybe that tradition of, in this case, scientism isn't as hegemonic as we'd like to believe with mm -hmm. people still denying things like uh, COVID or climate change or things along those lines that, that, that maybe the tradition that's attached to those is not as strong as the prior traditions of which a lot of these 
um, individuals that are non-believers in science in this case, they're clinging to. Yeah, because they're true believers in the other side, right? Right. Meaning hmm. religion, so forth. I mean, it's, yeah. it's just an interesting thought exercise. But yeah. Yep. And then he sort of ends the introduction talking about the nation state, which he writes about extensively elsewhere also. Um, quote, he says, we should not be misled by a curious but understandable paradox. The modern nations and all their Im impedimenta generally claim to be the opposite of novel, namely rooted in the remotest antiquity and the opposite of constructed, yes. namely human communities so natural as to require no definition other than self-assertion. And he continues, and just because so much of what subjectively makes up the modern nation consists of such constructs and is associated with appropriate and in general fairly recent symbols or suitably tailored discourse, such as nation, national history, in quotes, the national phenomenon cannot be adequately investigated without careful attention to the invention of tradition. So he's basically saying the nation state is actually a perfect example of all of these things because most people assume and nation states are presented as these things that have existed since time immemorial, right? They have always existed and they're essentially a natural organization of human beings that even if they haven't existed forever, that they were inevitable and that people have been organizing themselves in this way for a really long time. And like even before the first real nation state, that there was still nationalism and patriotism. Hobson says that's basically all nonsense, that the nation, the modern nation state is a very, very recent occurrence that has been constructed, it, itself is invented. And as such, if we really, really want to study modern nation states, we have to be completely aware of this invention of tradition, the way that traditions and their invention help solidify the legitimacy of nation states globally and really facilitated the perpetuation and proliferation of modern nation states across the globe. Yeah, Maybe we have a couple that. of episodes on, of course, nationalism as an ideology mm -hmm. and how it functions both for France and World War I. Mm -hmm. um, as uh, history has kind of bore out, most historians point to at oldest, I want to say the 1638 or 1648 Treaty of Westphalia is kind of like the origin yep. of like uh, the origin of like this nationalist thinking. But if you do that, if you think about it that way, the nation state or the ideas of nation and sovereignty and those types of things is quite young in human history. If humans have been around 350,000 years and we're talking about what the 1600s at this point. So this idea of nationalism is only 400 years old, which is a mere drop in the bucket. But what Nick is saying and what Hobsbawm is saying, I should say, is that we have invented the idea that, that, it, that even if it's not as old as time itself, the ideas that have all guided us here were evidential. It's almost like this natural trajectory. And this is the apex of social organization. Needless to say, if you've listened to more than one episode on this podcast, we find that the nation state and nationalism is an absolute um, embarrassment in terms of human organization and probably the worst thing, one of the worst things we've done um, in terms of, uh, well, I mean, just one need look no further than back-to-back -back world wars and transatlantic slave trades and climate change and all these other things that have been associated with nation-state style organization and politics for us to see that it's inadequate. But to maintain something so wildly inadequate, a lot of tradition has to be dumped into it. A lot of pageantry, cute little flags and um, emotional songs that you're supposed to rise and put your, your hand on your heart for. This, all of that is ritualization of behavior and it's a manufacture of a tradition that did not prior exist. Yeah, I was going to give the two examples you just did, right, that are classic. The Pledge of Allegiance in schools and the National Anthem be Which is indoctrination, right? Like yeah, exactly. I mean, do it. The term Hobson uses, right, is inculcation. That's exactly what is happening, right? 
we, I think, never hardly ever critically think about like the Pledge of Allegiance. But when you think about it at its search at fifth level, like it really is ridiculous, right? Kids in schools across the country stand up, put their hand on their heart and pledge allegiance to a flag, like literally to a, this symbol of this nation. I mean, there is no denying that that is just purely socialization into just blatant nationalism. And Hobsbawm's point is that this is all invented, that the nation state itself is invented, which is a highly controversial statement um, for a historian to make, not that we think it's controversial, but others would, because like you said, many people believe, well, the nation state is just inevitable. It's a natural way that human beings organize themselves. Like that's just nonsense. It's invented and very recently. So that's the first point. And then the second point is the just sheer amount of traditions we've had to invent to make people believe that the nation state is the quote unquote norm and that it is natural and that it, it's a, it's an efficient way of organizing ourselves and right. so forth. It's just think of so like Jared used the word pageantry, which is perfect. So much of this had to be created and manufactured and is continuously created and manufactured for us to believe in the nation that it should even be a thing. So that's kind of how Hobsbawm ends out his introduction by saying, for us historians and really anyone that wants to study study nations and nationalism and so forth, we have to uh, be willing to study and pay attention to the invention of traditions and their roles. And okay. it's so hegemonic that most of us can't even imagine a world without it using this as the specific example, right? Let's even mm-hmm. stop picking on the political and social and, and, and just think about the geographic, which we'll preview something we'll be talking about in the future. But like most people, when you look at a map of the world or the globe or whatever, we can't even imagine a world without the nation state. It's how we orient ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's how we organize ourselves. When we meet somebody that has an accent, that's one of the first questions we ask. It's not like, how's your family or what do you do for a living? What country do you come from, right? Like these are the things that have wholly been like socialized into us through the invention of this tradition. Even when I'm talking about, and I catch myself doing this all the time in class, I'll be talking about something that happened in African history and I'll be like, and I'll look at the map or something and it'll be like, like right here in Kenya. Well, Kenya didn't exist during perhaps the time I'm speaking of, but because it's just so easy and everyone's brain that works that way, when I'm pointing, there it is, right? Does that make sense? So like even even for more innocent things like that, just merely communicating, that's how powerful this tradition has become. Yeah, I was going to say that's a perfect example of just how like subconsciously we function in a world of nation states, even if we don't want to, right? Yeah. Your example is perfect. There's no way to refer to that point on the map without referencing nations and continents, right? Yes, mm-hmm. we could all say, well, at latitude X and longitude yeah. X, this event <laughs> right, happened, right. but like that's not how we talk. We talk right. in the world of nation states, right? So you can say right here in Kenya, and everyone has a general idea of what you're talking about. I guess if you're pointing at a map, most people don't know African countries, but that's a whole other issue. Um, but yeah, we, we literally can't navigate geographically without talking in the term of nation states. That's an excellent example. So you might have heard this and you're thinking like, cool, this doesn't sound that impactful. Like this historian had an idea, but I want to stress like how influential this concept was. I mean, still is. That's why we're talking about it when we're talking about just modern society and the way that we think about things and the development and establishment of symbols in our society, Hobsbawm writes this in 1983 as part of his massive body of work that he creates throughout his lifetime. And then this inspires so many other works digging into this concept. I wish I would have brought up how many works have cited this because it's definitely in the thousands, right? Mm -hmm. This way of 
analyzing not just sociologically, but uh, I mean, not just historically, but sociologically and psychologically and philosophically, like all of these other disciplines have placed a value on traditions in society and how they impact the way that we think and behave as a result of Hobsbawm really uh, flushing out this idea in this book and in other areas and then it being picked up by people. So this is a highly, highly influential idea that you can use for yourself. That's one of the appeals, I think, for Jared and I is that it's not it's not complex, like, you know, philosophically or anything. There's no jargon in here that you need to know. You could read these 15 pages and be well-equipped to do this on your own and just think about the tradition that you see in your life that you take part in and you watch other people take part in and what that tradition is trying to accomplish and to think about its history specifically. How was it invented and when and by whom and for what function and what function does it serve to this day and how does it make you view the world in a different way? All of these things you can get out of these 15 pages that Hausmann wrote, which is why it's so, so uh, influential. So like we said, this episode is really just to lay the groundwork for some episodes that we would like to do in the future, talking about these concepts uh, in more depth. So stay tuned for those future episodes. you have anything to add before we go out? Good. Take us out. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please leave us a rating in your podcast app that will help more listeners discover our show. Also know that we have a YouTube channel where we post all of our episodes and other videos that we create. Just search for Revolution and Ideology in YouTube. If you really enjoy what we do and would like to support us further, you can do so at patreon.com revolution and ideology. Many thanks to our Patreon supporters who keep us motivated to create content. You can find more information on our website at revolutionandideology.com.